Good morning. Hey, if you're visiting with us this morning, I want to extend a, a welcome to you. If you could, just uh, help us out with your information, and we'll get a uh, formal welcome to you in the days to come. I'm going to spend uh, some time here in the Word, so if you would, grab, grab your Bible, grab your smart device, and find Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. We've been going through Genesis uh, kind of in a unique way the last several weeks. We've been looking at how Jesus shows up, or at least uh, types of people that look a lot like Jesus, the scenarios in their life and things that God does through their life. Uh, for instance, we looked at Genesis chapter 1 to begin, and we saw how Jesus was that creation. And we looked at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And so we saw Jesus at creation, even in Genesis chapter 1. We talked about God being a sovereign God, that He's all-knowing, that He's all-powerful, that He's all-good. The second week we talked about God calling of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and that God is a missional God. God calls us on mission as well in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus Himself says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And he wouldn't ask us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. And so God is a missional God. We talked about the son of promise, Isaac, Genesis chapter 22, as God tells Abraham, just after he's made this great promise in chapter 12, 1 through 3, seven promises as a matter of fact, this child of the promise, Isaac, is um, one that, Abraham is told to take up on the mountain and to sacrifice. And so we talked about God being a sacrificial God. If you think about theology as a whole, I think you will agree with me that God is a sacrificial God. If, in fact, God is all-powerful, if he's all-knowing, if he's all-good, and he creates things that are good and very good, i.e. chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, then what happens at chapter 3, Right? And so God is a sacrificial God, and God expects us to sacrifice. That scenario, by the way, in chapter 22, that story in Genesis chapter 22, turns out well, uh, if you're not familiar with the story. We talked about Isaac and Rebekah in chapter 24 as God of being a holy God. Remember the servant that is sent back to Ur the Chaldees, and Rebekah is chosen as um, Isaac's wife, and we talked about God being a holy God. God expects us to be holy. Leviticus 11.44, it's also quoted in 1 Peter that God is a holy God. God is a separate uh, from all other gods, and God expects us to be separate from the rest of the world. And then last week we talked about Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis chapter 32, and we looked at Jesus wrestling with God in the Garden of Gethsemane as the Bible says, that he is sweating drops of blood. It's, it's like he is uh, in a battle, if you will. Um, not for himself, because he says, not my will, but yours be done. But he's battling for you and I. Um, and I'm reminded of a, a text from the Gospels where he looks over Jerusalem and he weeps uh, for their sin. That kind of gets us up to speed of where we're at today. And I want to take a look at Genesis chapter 37 and this man named Joseph. But before we do so, let's, let's pray. Let's give this time to God. Father, thank you for uh, your presence here this morning. Uh, thank you, God, that you love us the way you do. 
Father, I, I pray that in the next few minutes that um, we would do as you've done, God, that we would give all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our souls, uh, all of our strength uh, to you. Help us to be about your business. I pray, God, that where our ears have been uh, stopped up, that you would that you would allow us to hear. I pray, God, that where we've been spiritually blind, that you would do a work within us and allow us to see uh, through the text, uh, allow us to see you, allow us to see your will for our lives, allow us to see Jesus. Pray, God, that you would eliminate distractions, both inside this place and outside this place. Help us to be about your business. Help us to hear, and also, God, help us to respond. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Chapter 37, you know the story of Joseph, right? So Joseph is a son of Jacob. We've talked about Jacob. And Joseph is, as the text will say here in just a few moments, Joseph is a child that is promised to uh, uh, Jacob, and he has a certain affinity. The father, Jacob, has a certain affinity for Joseph. Here's the point I want you to take away uh, today. If there's nothing else you get, I want you to understand this that God is a God who suffers. Now, what do I mean by that? If God is all-knowing, if he's all-powerful, if he's all-good, why would God suffer? And I would offer to you, it's not because of he that he suffers. It's not because of God that he suffers. It's because you and I that he suffers. Does that make sense? In Genesis chapter 3, when we chose, when we chose to eat from the tree, and it says that you will surely die. God suffers. Every time we choose our own path, every, choo every time we choose selfishness, every time I choose my ways over God's ways, every time I choose to worship something other than God, God suffers. God is disappointed. God is discouraged. Do you understand what I'm saying? We all know how it all works out, right? Everything comes to fulfillment. God redeems, God restores, God reconciles, God makes things right. But for the time being, during this time, God is a suffering God. I want to show you that through the story of Joseph. So let's pick up reading. This is the NIV, chapter 37 of Genesis. It says this, Jacob lived in a land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Let's stop there for just a moment and let me ask you to consider in your own life, and maybe even some biblical examples, the idea of relationships or community. One of the things that I think Satan does, and he does quite well, if you understand what I'm saying, is he attacks us not just as individuals, he attacks us as community. He attacks us as those people that we're in relationship with. He attacks our families. You see that here in chapter 37 of, of Genesis, don't you? You see that Joseph is the one that Jesus will eventually come through the lineage of Joseph, if you know what we're talking about, right? 
go all the way back to chapter 12, when God promises Abraham, right, and all peoples will be blessed through you. From that point throughout the book of Genesis, we're told that God is not just a God of Abraham, but he's a God of Isaac. He's a God of Jacob. And if you follow that timeline, you would also recognize that he's a God of Joseph, which leads to David, which leads to Jesus. Do you follow? Right? So this is God's plan all along, and yet Satan comes in and tries to create chaos, and not just tries to create chaos, he creates chaos with this family of God being Jacob or Joseph's family. Satan attempts to create chaos among relationships, among family members, and this is a good example of that. Have you ever played the comparison game? Does anybody know what I mean when I say comparison game? Right? What I'm talking about is the grass is always greener on the other side. Anybody ever heard that, said that? Right? We think there's something better somewhere else. Right? Or, for those of you who are, who are working, you think that some of your, employer, uh, your, your fellow employees have it better than you do. Right? That's the comparison game. You follow what I'm saying? Or perhaps uh, you look at your neighbor and you think, man, if I just had that car, or if I just had that house, and maybe we kind of uh, rationalize it and say, if I had that house, I would really be able to do good ministry, right? Or if I really had that, that car, I would really be able to give rides to people who need rides, et cetera, et cetera. But there's this comparison game going on, and we oftentimes feel like that we are on the short end of the stick. Does anybody resonate with what I'm talking about, right? We all think that we're Job. You know the story of Job? Right? Job is a wealthy individual, really wealthy individual, and all of a sudden things go south, and he has nothing. Right? And he's persistent, and he's patient, and he's still waiting for God to do what God does. Marianne just read it for us a couple of minutes ago. Psalm chapter 23 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. How many of you like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Unless you're a masochist, we don't, right? We don't like pain. We don't like suffering. We don't like struggle. And it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, you will experience pain. You will experience suffering. You will experience even death. Right? But the psalmist goes on to say, for you are with me. Right? Isn't that good news? Right? In other words, this is not the end. Right? You're going to go through the valley of the shadow of death. You're going to experience pain. You're going to experience struggle. And like Job, you may even have some friends that show up and give you some bad theology and say, well, you must have done something in your life, Job, or all this stuff wouldn't have happened. Right? Or maybe you have that encouraging wife or that encouraging husband that shows up and says, curse God and die. The point I'm trying to make is we all feel like Job sometimes. We look around us and we go, where is God? If, if what we've said before, if we really believe that God is sovereign, that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-good, why would he allow something like this to happen? This is a question of theodicy, right? It's the question of evil. Why would God allow... Bad things to happen to good people. Have you heard that before? Have you said it before? Right? We've all thought it before. If we haven't said it, right? Why would a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? 
This is the story of Joseph. He's not much different than Job. And Satan attacks him, not directly, but through his family. Did you notice that? Sometimes we get off in this comparison game and we think that somebody else has it better than us. And I think that is a horrible idea that God wants us to uh, overcome. For instance, uh, prayer list, right? We've talked before about um, how many times do we recognize our own stuff, our own struggles, but when we start looking at the prayer list and recognizing everybody else's struggles, we realize how blessed we are, right? We talked in our Bible study this morning, and Jackie brought up this acronym that some of you perhaps have heard before. It's ACTS when you're praying, your adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Did you notice that? Adoration, that's recognizing God. And the next thing is confession, recognizing you are not God. The next thing is thanksgiving. Before you ever get to your laundry list of things that you want to pray about, you recognize the faithfulness of God, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And oftentimes, even those of us in the church, even those of us who experienced God's faithfulness, sometimes we fall to that trap of the flesh and we forget how blessed we are. And Jesus would encourage us in Matthew chapter 6 when he's asked to teach us to pray, Jesus. And Jesus would start his prayer in saying, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. In other words, sovereign. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, not this life. Give us this day our daily bread. It's this statement of faith, right? But it's faith in not ourselves, not in the circumstances, but faith in the one who is over the circumstances, if you will. In, in the story of Joseph, we see this, this idea of relationships. Did you notice there's three different parties to this relationship? First of all, Joseph, how do you respond if you're a man of 17, right? He's with his older brothers. They're much older. If you don't know your Old Testament history, they're much older. And the semantics here in chapter 37 with Joseph out tending with the flocks in Hebrew, it's kind of interesting because it says, it says et. It says in the Hebrew, it is he's ruling over not just the flocks, but he's also ruling over his brothers. Kind of interesting here in chapter 37 because if you know the story of Joseph, what, it, what happens, happens? He rules over his brothers. More of that here in just a second. But the writer of Genesis knows exactly what he's doing, right? When he says, Joseph, who is 17, is already over his brothers who are much older. And Satan uses that, right? Because it starts with a comparison game, then it becomes jealousy. Anybody struggle with jealousy? In Galatians chapter 5, I was looking at this past week, right before it gives us the fruit of the Spirit, Paul tells the church in Galatia, he tells us the same thing, Right before it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it talks about this laundry list of things before we meet Christ. And one of those things before we meet Christ is what? Jealousy. And if you don't deal with jealousy, if you don't deal with that covetous nature, right? Ten Commandments, anybody? Right? You shall not covet. You shall not worry about what your neighbor has. You shall not worry about all the stuff that you think that will fulfill you, right? If you don't deal with that jealousy... It will lead to bitterness, and bitterness leads to hatred, and hatred leads to what? Murder. Remember what Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, do not murder, but I tell you, anyone who has called out Raka, anyone who 
hates his brother enough to kill him has already committed murder in his heart. Do you hear that? Right? Well, it says here that Joseph was 17. He's not very wise. You'll see that here in just a second. But his brothers are jealous of him. Why are they jealous of him? Because his father loves him more than he loves them. They know that. It's obvious. Joseph's the only one with this coat of many colors, right? In other words, Jacob has made it clear that he loves Joseph more than the others. That would lead to some jealousy. That would lead to some bitterness. That would lead to some hatred. Satan is well at work here in this text. How do you respond if you're Joseph? How do you respond Jacob, who we've already seen has some issues in his own life, probably shouldn't have uh, done what he does. And he's going to do some crazy things here in just a second as well. But what about these brothers? It says in verse 5, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. Why? Because here's the dream. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. Now you know, you know if you've got a coat of many colors, you know if your father loves you more than he loves your brothers, that you probably shouldn't share everything that you know, right? Right? Yes. But he's 17 years old. I'd be willing to bet when you were 17 you made some pretty immature decisions. I know I made some really immature decisions when I was 17 years old, and perhaps we can let Joseph off the hook for his immaturity a little bit. But he shares with them this dream, and he says to them, listen to this dream I had. Make sure you guys are all paying attention, right? Because I want you to understand this, right? Or maybe even help me understand this, right? Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Now we in the West probably don't get the whole picture of that, but for the ancient Near East when he says, hey, a 17-year-old man, my sheaf rises and all you older guys, right, you're going to eventually bow down to me. Don't, do you think they're a little bit offended? Of course they are, right? Joseph, this guy who has a coat of many colors, right, who is loved more by his father than anyone of the other brothers, right? They're deeply offended, not only by what Jacob has done, but by this dream that Joseph shares with them. And his brothers said, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? That makes no sense if you're talking about person to person, right? They hated him all the more, it says, because of his dream and what he had said. Remember, jealousy leads to bitterness, Bitterness means to this intend to do harm, maybe even murder, right? He should have learned a lesson. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Were you offended the first time? Now you're really going to be offended, right? So he has this other dream, and he tells it to his brothers. Listen, pay attention. I want you guys to hear this, right? I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Are you crazy? Right? 17-year-old guy, he has this other dream, and of course we know in hindsight this is a dream from God, right? But why would you share these dreams with your brothers? When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him. Jacob said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. Remember what jealousy gets you. Bitterness. Hatred. Perhaps even murder. His brothers were jealous of him. But his father, Jacob, kept this matter in mind. Why? 
Because Jacob knows who God is. Amen? Right? He's not just the God of Abraham. He's the God of Abraham. Isaac. And remember last week we talked about him? He wrestles with a man, a man who he later on says, I have wrestled with God face to face and I prevailed. Right? He limps from that point on. He's met with God face to face and he recognizes that maybe God is in these dreams that Joseph has. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Now this is the point that I think, can you be any more foolish, Jacob? Right? Why would you send Joseph to, your, to his brothers if you loved him more? They knew it. You provided this coat of many colors. He's out by himself. What do you think is going to happen? Right? As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. VeggieTales. Right? Anybody familiar with VeggieTales? Right? This is the story where Joseph goes by the pizza hut, grabs some pizza, and he's on the way to deliver to his brothers. Right? Of course, I'm not a big follower of VeggieTales. I just think it's kind of funny that, that the writer of, 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 of VeggieTales thinks it's pretty important that he's not just going to check on his brothers, but he's going to run by the local pizza establishment and take pizza to his brothers. So he says, very well, right? Knowing full well they're already angry with him. Very well, he replied. So Jacob says to Joseph, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me, right? So he sends him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance, and before, they reached it, before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Remember, jealousy leads to bitterness. Bitterness leads to hatred. Hatred leads to murder. Before he gets there, they recognize him from a distance. Why would they recognize him from a distance? Because he has a coat of many colors, right? It's a good reminder that our Father loves him more than he loves us. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of the cisterns. And let's say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Do you hear this slippery slope that goes on? Right? When you start with jealousy, and it leads to bitterness, and it leads to hatred, and at least to covering up your sin. Perhaps you know somebody who's fallen into that cycle of sin who seems like it just can't, can't stop, right? It's just this constant, I've sinned, I feel guilty about it. Instead of being repentant, instead of going back to God, instead of shuving, if you know the Old Testament Hebrew, instead of turning back to God, I continue down this path by lying, by deceiving by saying, no, it's not me, it's not my fault, I, I don't come clean, I don't confess, and so these lies get bigger and bigger and bigger, and the snowball is rolling downhill uh, pretty quickly. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, it says. Here comes this dreamer. You notice that? When Reuben heard of this plan that they contrived, verse 21, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Reuben, Reuben has a little bit of wisdom here. Let's not take his life. He's the oldest, by the way, and so he has some 
responsibility for the youngest, or Joseph at this time. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben, the motivation here is given by the narrator here in verse 22. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. If you know this in the Hebrew, this is pretty interesting because Reuben is not just rescuing Joseph. Later on, Joseph will rescue Reuben. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. Remember? The coat of many colors, which represents what? Jacob's love for Joseph. Jealousy. Bitterness. Hatred. They took him and threw him into a cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, notice what happens. When you get to a place where your sin doesn't matter anymore, you sit down and you eat a meal. Does your sin bother you? When the Spirit convicts you, does your sin really, really bother you? We see the sin of the brothers here um, more so, I think, than we see the sin of Jacob or or even Joseph, this idea of manipulation may be considered sin, but their sin, jealousy, bitterness, hatred, even to the point of murder. Okay, we're not going to murder him. That would be a little bit too far. How are we going to come up with some kind of excuse? Let's say what we'll do, we'll just sell him off. And now let's sit down and have a meal. There comes a point in time, I think, where we're callous to our sin where we're numb to it, where it doesn't mean a whole lot anymore. That's a, listen church, that's a really, really dangerous place to be. When the Spirit attempts to convict you of your sin, and you go, over there, I'll, I'll deal with you here in a little bit, right? Or the Bible would say in the New Testament, he would say we grieve the Holy Spirit by doing what we do, Right? We know we should be worshiping God, and what are we doing? We're worshiping these other things that we consider them God, right? We, we value those things more than we do the one true God. We become idolaters, right? I wonder sometimes if our sin... Think about this. This is 2019. Look, look around you. Do you think sin bothers us anymore? And they sat down, and they were going to have a meal. So they looked up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. Who are the Ishmaelites? The Ishmaelites are representative of the Gentiles. They're not Isaac, right? Remember who Ishmael is? Comes from Hagar, comes from Abraham. Abraham's trying to do God's work for him, if you will, right? God's a little bit busy, Sarah. What do we, what do, we do? Well, Sarah has this great idea. Hey, go into my maidservant, Hagar, and have this child. And they have this child called Ishmael. And Ishmael and Hagar are eventually sent out of the camp. And they represent the enemies of God's people, right? They're not, they're not what God's plan is, right? And so from that point on, the Ishmaelites and the Israelites have always been in conflict. Look at your Middle East news today, right? They will always be in conflict until Christ returns, right? So the Ishmaelites come along, they represent these pagans, these Gentiles, and guess what Joseph's brothers are about to do? They're going to sell him off to the Gentiles. They're going to sell him off to the pagans. They're going to sell him off to unbelievers. Maybe this is just one step ahead of murder, but it's not much ahead of murder. Get the idea? Right? 
And so listen to what it says. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. They were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, Reuben, where's Reuben? Right? He'll show up here again in just a second. But Judah, the second in command, if you will, said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? He has a little bit of, of integrity, I suppose, right? He's, he's a, a little bit convicted about what their plan was. Come, let's, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's not lay hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our only flesh and blood. His brother said, okay, that sounds like a good plan. I think the, the better incentive of selling him off is the next paragraph, verses 28 and follow. Well, verse 28. So when the Midianite merchants came by, Midianites, Ishmaelites, Gentiles, pagans, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and said, hey, look, we've got a deal for you. And they sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites. They sold him to the Gentiles. They sold him to unbelievers who took him to Egypt. Now, if you're an Old Testament historian, if you're a New Testament Christian who knows your Old Testament, what is Egypt? It's bondage, right? And that's why we find the, the Israelites in Egypt. They're in bondage for 400 years. God has told them this is what's going to happen, right? He, he's told them, he's promised this is what's going to happen. God, God's an all-knowing God. We've talked about this. And so your, your people, the Israelites, are going to go off into bondage. And the reason they're going off into bondage is because of sin, right? More about this here. Do, do, you know, do you understand that people are always going to let you down? Do you understand that? I think we've all lived long enough to know that people are always going to disappoint you. Still hurts, doesn't it? Uh, still disappointing. But people are always, always going to hurt you. I remember learning that when I was about that tall. Uh, and I still haven't quite understood it completely, right? People are always going to hurt you. As opposed to God who will always be faithful. Even your brothers. Think about that for a second. Even those closest to you. Solomon would say in, in Proverbs, he would say, hey, be your, your friend who sticks closer to a brother. Why? Because a brother's knife hurts a little bit more than anybody else's. Get the idea? People will always let you down. The question is, how do you respond when people let you down? Or maybe a better question is, how does God respond when people let him down? When you and I let him down. Joseph is sold um, to the Ishmaelites. Let me offer to you just quickly a text from Romans chapter 8. You think God knew that the Ishmaelites were going to come along? Verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, I consider that our present sufferings, this is Paul writing to the church in Rome, right? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Listen, for the creation, all of creation, the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. If you don't know, in Romans chapter 5, he's already said, Jesus, the prototype, is much better than Adam, right? Jesus is the one plan that God had along, all along. So in verse 22, he goes on to say, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the, the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, 
the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope we were uh, for in this we hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Listen, pay attention. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through the worldless groans, wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, church, listen, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. Many of you know that text, right? Many of you know that verse. Many of you memorized that verse. All things, and in all things, God works for the good. In all things, even when people hurt you, in all things, it says. That's, that's a little Greek word, pos. All means all. And in all things, even when you're sold out by your brothers, and in all things, God's plan will come to fruition. Was it God's will that his brothers sell him? No. But God can still use something out of this. God can make something so beautiful out of something so ugly. Do you follow what I'm saying? People will let you down. Um, God's not surprised by that. You should not be surprised by that, even though it's hurtful, even though it's harmful from time to time. Um, I'm reminded of James chapter 1, a text that many of us know as well. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. What does that mean? You're going to face trials. There's going to be suffering. You're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So why would I throw a party? Why would I consider it pure joy? Because all these things are for your benefit. You're going to be perseverance. You're going to be not just perseverant. You're going to develop character. You're going to have hope. You're going to become the person that God wants you to be. Do you follow? Right? Even when people let you down. Joseph. So here's the question. What is Joseph? Let me, let me finish reading the chapter, and then I'll ask a question. So when the Midianite brothers, uh, merchants, came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of his sister, and they sold him for 20 pieces of silver, or shekels of silver, it should say, to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. So Reuben returned to the sister, and he'd been gone somewhere. comes back, hey, Joseph's not here. What, what's going on? I'm responsible for this guy. And he tears his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, hey, the boy isn't here. What can I, what can I do now? What are we going to tell Dad? They got Joseph's robe, they slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe. Remember the cycle of sin we talked about? Right? To cover up your sin, you were going to do even more sin. Right? They got Joseph's robe, they slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and they took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this, examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. That was his assumption. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces, and nobody corrected his assumption, knowing full well what happened. Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt, the place of bondage, to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. What does this chapter have to do with Jesus? Remember, we're talking about Jesus in Genesis. So let me show you a couple things. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. I'm going to read not the entire chapter because it's a pretty lengthy chapter, but there are certain 
portions of this chapter that I think point back to Joseph. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, these things being the teachings that Matthew has recorded for us, he said to his disciples, his closest followers, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over. The Son of Man will be betrayed, be crucified. Then the chief priests, who are the chief priests? They're the, they're the authority in the Jewish religion, right? You might consider these guys brothers of a rabbi named Jesus. The chief priests and the elders of the people assembled the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Before Joseph arrives to Dothan to check on his brothers, they see him in a distance and they conspire to kill him. Here in Matthew chapter 26, before he gets to Caiaphas, they scheme to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. You get the idea? Drop down to verse 14 for the sake of time. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I offer him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. Does that sound familiar? 20 pieces, 20 shekels of silver in Genesis chapter 37. Here it's 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Drop down to verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they could not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. But Jesus remained silent. But Jesus remained silent. If you read the rest of the Joseph account in chapter 39, Joseph is thrown in prison over a false accusation of adultery with Potiphar's wife. And when you're in prison, you have no voice at all. You're silent. Here we see Jesus, after he's accused of things that he's not responsible for, remains silent. Drop down to verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Yeah, that's his robe, and it's got blood on it. It must be that he was devoured by an animal. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out of the gateway where the, another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, the fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it again with an oath, I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them, your accent gives you away. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, just as Jesus said, or said he would, would happen. And Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Do you see the similarities between Joseph and Jesus? If you don't, let me offer them to you. In chapter 37, verse 18, there's a conspiracy to murder their brother Joseph. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 4, there's a conspiracy to crucify Jesus. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 28, Joseph is sold for 20 shekels of silver 
In Matthew chapter 26, verse 15, Jesus is sold by Judas Iscariot for 30 pieces of silver. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 28, Joseph is handed over to the Midianites, the Ishmaelites, the Gentiles. In Matthew chapter 27, which I didn't read, Matthew 27, verse 2, Jesus finds himself before Pilate, the governor, because the high priest can't crucify him. He has to go to the Roman officials. In Genesis chapter 39, when Joseph is in prison, he suffered in silence. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, Jesus Christ was silent to fulfill Isaiah chapter 53, where a sheep before his shearers is silent. In Genesis chapter 45, verse 7 and 8, which I didn't read, there's salvation for his people. Joseph is in second in command in Egypt when there's this famine in the land. And guess where Joseph's brother have to go to be saved? They stand before Joseph, if you don't know the story, and he doesn't tell them who he is right away, right? But he has the power to save them, right? Later on in chapter 50, verse 20, he would say, you meant what happened for evil, but God meant it for good. Remember, God is sovereign. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is all-good. Remember Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God will work out all things, all things, all things, even the brothers that sell you out, even the brothers that sell you out. God will work out these things to make something good happen. Joseph has the opportunity to save his people. And if you don't know the story, even Jacob and brothers are reunited as they go to the land of Goshen, chapter 45, verse 7 and 8. Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes, God in the flesh, God incarnate, whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ came to save the world. Can I ask you one question before we finish up? And I'm going to go back to a question I've already asked you. Hopefully you see the similarities between Joseph and Jesus. I don't believe that's coincidence, Jay. I'm with you, man. I think the older I get, the more mature I get, I recognize that God is working in ways that I can't even begin to imagine. Let me go back to this question I asked you earlier. What about your sin? There's times I think we're prompted or tempted to be like the older brothers and sell out the younger brother. There's times that we're, we've been offended. This guy's a dreamer. Um, he's got some kind of in, special relationship with God. Everybody knows Daddy loves him more, right? He's got a coat of many colors. And we do all the things the flesh calls out for us to do, right? We have this comparison game. We become jealous. We, we become bitter. Eventually we hate. And we're hating him or we're selling him, him, her. You hear what happens? This cycle of, of sin. So has your sin become callous? Does it bother you like it once did? If not, what do you do about it? That's a real challenge, right? If it doesn't, if it doesn't affect you. If you just kind of go, you know, I've been convicted by the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to deal with it. I'll, I'll deal with it over here. But right now, i got this stuff going on. Listen to what it says in 1 John 1, 9. And I'll, and I'll finish with this. If we claim to be without sin, it's pretty important to confess, recognize who we are, 
It's pretty important not just to confess, but to repent, right? To shuv, to turn around, to go back the other direction. If we confess our sins, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. He will purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him, Jesus, out to be a liar and His word is not in us. Pretty powerful language, would you agree? So what do you do with your sin? What do you do with your sin? Does it still bother you? If not, man, I pray pray that uh, you will listen to that small, still voice, um, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, as you're being convicted. If you don't know God, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know the love that God has for us, I pray that today is the day of salvation. But for those of us who have claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ, for those of us who claim to be people of God, I wonder if we're like brothers of Joseph. I wonder if we're like the religious people, the high priest, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that sell Jesus out for just a chump change of money, right? All because our sin doesn't bother us anymore. God forgive us. Let's pray. Father, for your word, uh, for the story of Joseph, we pray, God, that you would allow us to hear Uh, Not just with natural ears, God, but allow us to hear with spiritual ears. Allow us to hear, allow us to see um, with spiritual eyes as well. We pray, Father, that um, when we're tempted to overlook our sin, when we're tempted to become callous, when we're uh, so caught up in the cycle of sin that it becomes uh, numbing, I pray that you would uh, shake our world. Uh, do, Do what you need to do. Help us to understand what the crucifixion was all about. Um, You are a God who suffers because we are a people who sin. Help us to understand those things in Christ's name.